This morning, as we turn in the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, we are reading a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's amazing because as you and I think about it, we look at this Ephesians letter and the whole message of Ephesians is the unity of Christ, the unity the church is to have in Jesus Christ. And yet there has never been a time when there has been more different kinds of churches in the world. There's, I, I, I'm told, there, there are Baptist churches, there are Methodist churches, there are Catholic churches, and the most amazing thing is that though the, all of these institutions, which are man-driven, they're man, they come from individuals who were teaching the scriptures, all of them represent the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? But there's also those who claim to be a church, and they're not, because they do not affirm what we affirmed in the Apostles' Creed this morning. They they believe they say in Jesus, but they don't believe he was God in the flesh, that he was truly man and truly God. Well, it wasn't any different in Paul's day as he's writing to the Ephesians. He's writing to a group of people who are living in a city that is, that is a, a commercial city. It's a city that, get this, had 14 different temples where people worshipped idols. They called their gods. And one in particular was called Artemis. Artemis was a female goddess who was basically a goddess, a goddess of, of fertility. And so there was all kind of immorality involved with the worship of this goddess. Both men and women involved in, in what you would call today a prostitution of priests who delivered themselves to be used in that worship. So immorality was not foreign to that world, just as it is not foreign to our world. So what you're seeing happening in our culture has been around for a very long time. And it's not surprising then, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing to them living in the area of the Mediterranean, which is a, a tremendously important city of commerce. It's almost a cosmopolitan city. It's made up of all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, from all parts of the Roman world. And in writing to them, he's writing them, reminding them that when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they heard and believed because God was in the business of reconciling people to, in Christ, and he was requiring believers to live a life worthy of that salvation that Christ has given. He says in chapter 2 of verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this, the faith, is not of our own. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man or woman would boast. And so in light of that, as we've read through the first three chapters, we found that it's really the whole book is split into two sections. The first, Paul explains about what God did for you in Jesus and why Jesus came, why he died on the cross, why God raised him from the dead, and what Christ is doing now is he is Lord of all things, that he is or he is orchestrating what is happening in the church throughout the world. As the church goes out and proclaims Jesus, many are receiving Christ. Just like this past week, we saw many children hear the gospel, and they said, we want Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And so the last half of the chapter, or the last half of the book, is, is where, we're be, where we're going today, and it deals with how then, if you believe in Christ, are you to live now? If you've made your profession of faith in Christ, then how are you to live now that you've done that? 
And so in light of that, I want to ask you if you'll stand with me. Just join me as we show the respect of God's word before us and we ask God to teach us from his word. And I invite you now to hear the word of God. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the new way or the, is not the way of life you learn. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. My friends, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Is anyone cold in here? I'm feeling it. I want you to know. I am, and I'm sorry, but we're going to get through this, and I appreciate your patience. By the way, Cindy and I, right after the close of the service, are having to rush off because there is a, a sister church in Mooresville that is without a pastor, and they're having a congregational meeting. And the presbytery has asked me to moderate that. So I'm going to ask if Ken Belk, Ken, raise your hand. Wave it real big so people can see you. If Ken Belk and Rick's, Rick Sorkson, if you raise your hand, those are the elders in the church. I'm going to ask them to go to the front door and stop you from leaving before they speak to you. So if they don't speak to you before you leave, tell me about it, and I'll tell them how unfriendly they are, okay? As we look at this passage this morning and we begin to think about it, one of the things I thought was real interesting is that there was once a book that was written in the early 1900s. In fact, it was written back in 1901 by a man named James Allen. Do you know a man named James Allen? Well, my, my internist is James Allen. I'm thinking, oh, I, I must know this guy. Well, no, this is a different James Allen. He lived and was born in, of all things, he was born in 1864 and lived till 1912. He was a British philosopher and writer, and he was known for his inspirational books and poetry. And you will not be surprised that he is actually the person who's responsible for all the self-help books that you see in the bookstore. You know, like how to improve your marriage, you know, how to raise your kids so they don't scream, shout, and say no. All those books, basically he was considered the father of the self-help authors because he wrote a book that called, was titled, As a Man Thinketh in His Heart, So Is He. It was written for the purpose of helping people, and it was written, by the way, in 1903, uh, to inspire people to think about the way they think about their life. And by thinking about how they think about their life, they can change the way they live. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The inspiration of this came from Psalm 23, verse 7, where it says in that verse, Eat thou the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. And the morsels which you hast eaten shall cause you to vomit up and lose thy sweet words. And you're saying, well, what is that about? Well, it's a, it's a proverb that says, don't go to someone's dinner table and eat their food and try to figure out what they're thinking because what they're probably thinking is how much it's costing them to feed you. He took the inspiration of that verse and applied it to himself in a way that God never intended from that verse. You see, while the passage suggests that one should consider the true motivation of a person who is being uncharacteristically generous before accepting his generosity, the title of the content of Alan's work refers to the reader, meaning, as a man thinketh, so is he. And there's some truth to that. What you think about influences how you live. According to James Allen, if you think the right thoughts, you'll be okay. Is that true? You see, that's the problem with self-help books. Self-help books promise you that if you will do certain things, think certain ways, that you can change your behavior and by changing your behavior, you can live a better life. And there is something to be said about being reflective on your life. But as we read the passage this morning, I don't want you to leave here thinking that Paul is telling you, think the good thoughts and then everything will be good for you. Because that's not what he's saying. Interestingly enough, as he digs into this passage, which we've read, he's doing it in the context of calling people who have believed in Christ to a different way of living. And he says, you need to live a life that's worthy of the calling that you have been given. In other words, if you have come to put your faith in Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins and adopt it into God's family and you're now a part of God's kingdom and you're at, involved in the work of what God is doing in creating this new thing called the church, out of Jews and Gentiles, God is creating a new humanity called the church. And that new humanity is to go out and proclaim Christ to the world because the only hope the world has is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, because you've been called to that calling, if you want to have a life that is with no regrets, then do two things. Maintain the unity of walking with Christ and loving others who love him. And secondly, grow deeper in knowing who Jesus is. Grow deeper. It's in that second part, growing deeper, that Paul continues in teaching us this morning. And he wants you to understand that you want to, you, you probably feel like I need help. I mean, if, if, you, if you live long enough, you look around and you think, man, I wish my marriage was better. I wish I knew how to treat people who don't treat me well. I, I wish I knew how to respond to things. And what God is telling us is that in Jesus Christ, we have all the resources we need in order to live a life worthy of loving God and living out the life we've been given. And he starts by saying this. He says, I want to remind you that because you now know Christ and you now love him and understand what he's done for you in the cross and the power that is available to you now through the resurrection, because he teaches us in the third chapter that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you he says because of this you are to no longer live 
like those who don't know God. That's what a Gentile was, someone who was an idol worshiper. They didn't know who God is, so they created a God of their imagination. And because they created a God of their imagination, they lived a life basically doing whatever that they wanted. And many times it did not please God. But please notice where he says in the beginning of chapter 14, he says, I want you to know, I'm going to say this to you. What is he saying? He's speaking from his own authority that Jesus gave him to be an apostle. It's an apostolic command. You say, well, who is Paul that I should have to listen to him? Well, he was an apostle because Jesus saw that he was going to persecute the church and visited him on the road to Damascus as he was going from one city to another. And there, Paul encountered the risen Christ. And one of the two requirements to be an apostle is that you had to have an encounter face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. And secondly, you had to be commissioned by him to do some work that he was sending you to do. And Paul visited with Christ on that road to Damascus, and he was so struck by it, he was blinded, and then later healed through that process. But secondly, Jesus said, you're going to be sent to the Gentiles. And so he became known as the apostle to the Gentiles, which is the whole reason he wrote this letter. And so he's not standing on his own authority by saying, listen, don't live like you used to. He's standing on the authority that has been given to him by Christ. But secondly, it's not just an authority that came to him by Christ. He declares that this is not something he's thought of in his mind. He's declaring it to you because this is what Jesus taught those who would follow after him. And so in that vein then, we can't turn away from these next three chapters. We have to really dig into it because, <clears throat> excuse me, is not his own imaginations. This is not Paul's self-help book for life. This is the Lord's word. This is how he expects us to live. Well, in light of that then, what was this former way of life they used to have, these Ephesians? Well, if you went to Ephesus today, you could still walk through the ruins of that city. And in the middle of that city was this beautiful I mean, y'all, it it's, it's just more glorious than any building you would have ever seen in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else in the world. It was a beautiful temple raised to worship an idol called Artemis. And it was, had beautiful Roman columns, I think over 30-something Roman columns that just stretched to the heavens. And as you walked into this place, you would just be overwhelmed by the beauty of it. It was the seat in other words, if you were going to go to the central location of that worship of Artemis, if you were going to talk to the person in charge of the worship, you would go to that city and go to that temple. But not only that, Ephesus was also known for the vast library of knowledge that they housed. They had a library that people could actually go and look at manuscripts and study. And the overwhelming knowledge that was in that building was just extraordinary. And right next to it no kidding like that building right there that close was the local cult prostitutes that would ply their wares so that as you walk through the city you could worship an idol you could go to the library and pick up knowledge and then you could satiate any pleasure that you wanted in that place 
And Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, you can no longer live the way you used to. The fourth thing that's important about the city is they had what was called an Aragopolis, which was like a big mall. It's, it was as big as two or three football fields, and it was surrounded by a, a portico that was covered that housed businesses that would come and ply their trades, and they would trade all kinds of garments and textiles and, and all kinds of beautiful ornaments. It was a city of great wealth. And Paul says to them, you now know Christ. You are no longer to live like those Ephesians. And you're thinking, okay, does that mean they, well, they can't go to the temple, they can't go to the library, they can't go to the lo local excitement parlor, they can't go to the businesses? Paul says, no, no, you don't get it. Now that you know the one true God, you don't go to the temple because that is not the one true God. You don't need to go to the libraries because though that knowledge is helpful and useful, it is not the one knowledge that leads you to a life change. You will not find in the library the resources that help you live a life pleasing to God. And there's no amount of money that you can earn or gather that can satisfy what your heart longs for, which is to know the living God and why he's created you. And so in that way, he says, you first of all must understand. And if you see it in verse 18, it's really quite powerful. He says, you are no longer to live as those who have been darkened in their understanding. Well, what, what does he mean? Well, he even uses a verse in verse 17 to, to amplify it. He says that you're not to live as the Gentiles who live in the futility of their thinking. Well, what does he mean by that, futility? Well, if you've ever done anything nonsensical, have you ever done that? We were touring the Tower of London in, in, in the, back in the days when Anne was younger, my daughter. And in that tower, they had steps, and you had to climb up these steps. And there were just so many of them. We went just climbing all these steps, and we were just exhausted. And we got to the top, and when we got to the top step, they had five steps that went down after you just came up. And they went nowhere. And my daughter said, well, what's the purpose of that? And I thought, yeah. Well, that's what futility feels like. Paul says, you who know God in Jesus Christ are no longer to live without a plan, a purpose, because now you have a plan, a purpose in Christ. You say, what? Well, now that you have come to know God, you know that the reason God made you was for you to love him and enjoy him forever. That was the why you were created. He says you should not be like those Ephesians darkened in their minds. Well, what, what imagery is that? Well, it's figurative imagery. It's not that your mind is, is darkened in the sense that you can't think. It's just that you don't think rightly. It's, it's that perception or figuratively it's a lack of religious or moral perception of, of how to think about God, how to think about your life, how to make sense of it. I remember growing up as a teenager, I didn't have a father, and what I desperately needed was someone to show me the way on how to be a man. I desperately needed someone to come in my life to coach me on what I should do and not do. And let me tell you, fathers, 
there is a, an assault on you today where everything you see tries to belittle being a father. And everyone is saying, well, fathers don't matter. Well, let me tell you, if you are a father or a grandfather, you have an internal purpose in God in raising the next generation. They do what you do. They mimic what you, what you practice. They repeat what you say. Do you see how important you are, fathers? And so now that you've come to know God the Father in heaven, who is your Father, Paul is saying this darkened mind has to be changed so that you begin to mimic what God does. You begin to emulate who God is. And by doing that, your mind is no longer darkened. In fact, the Bible says that your mind becomes enlightened. You begin to go, oh, I get it. I mean, men... When in the history of the United States has not been a time where God asked in that song that we sing, Rise up, O men of God. And yet we're seeing a darkening of our minds. Why? Well, pornography. It's, it's all over. It, it's robbing intimacy of couples. It's robbing people of their ability to be fathers. And it's robbing us men of the promise we have in Jesus Christ to be salt and light for a culture that is desperate. Because let me tell you, it never can satisfy the way a wife can satisfy you. Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually in every way. You didn't think that was a problem back in Ephesus? It was. It was a huge problem. Paul writes and he says, listen, not only should you no longer be thinking futile thoughts or being darkened in your mind, he goes on to say that you were once separated from God. I want you to know, I know what separation is like and I don't like it. Uh, when Cindy and I were first dating, um, she lived in Richmond and I lived in Statesville. And I burned up that road between Statesville and Richmond. Because I really wanted to be with her. But let me tell you, there were moments where we couldn't be together. And so finally I said, please marry me. And she said, well, let me think about it. <laughs> but I longed to be with her. You see, that's what's happened to you now that you've come to know Christ. That's why you come to church. You don't come to church to be popular. I hope you don't. You don't come to this church because you're looking for some kind of accolades. I hope you don't. You see, the reason we come and worship is we want to be close to God. Once we were separated from him, we didn't know him. And now, through Christ, we're learning all these wonderful things about Christ that we never and God that we never knew before. We're learning how to be men and women. Isn't that interesting? But the last part of this that Paul warns them about is, <coughs> please excuse me, that you are no longer to live as someone who has no conscience. Do you know what someone who has no conscience is called? A psychopath. I, I hate to admit this to you, but I have really started studying psychopaths. I I've watched some things on Netflix. Have you seen them? There's a program called Mindhunter that was put together from a book written by a former FBI agent. And they go and interview all these psychopaths who have murdered thousands of people. 
and they're trying to figure out what makes them tick. Let me tell you what makes them tick. You know what it is? They have no fear of God. And what was worse is they never had an attachment to someone who loved them. And so they could just kill with no conscience whatsoever. By the way, the Marines love those kind of people. Did you notice that? That's what they really try to train people who go into the Army and the Marines, to kill with no conscience. That's why a lot of men still struggle, even today. Former member of this church, Lewis Edmonston, who was wounded in the Battle of the Bulge, wounded there, was one of only two of his whole battalion to survive. And the whole part of his life was looking back and thinking, why did God let me live? Torn in his heart by what had happened. Well, why do I say that? Because without God, this world is filled with psychopaths. People who are selfish and driven for their own desires and their own way and their own will. And they care nothing for anyone else. This is the result of what happens when God is absent. This happens, and it's happening in our culture, because the knowledge of God is not present in people who are making decisions for our lives. It's a scary thing to think about, isn't it? It was that way when Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians. And he says, the only hope we have is Jesus Christ. Why? Because the way of living that you have learned is no longer that old way. It's a new way. Isn't that glorious? I mean, we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to do that. Now that we've come to know Christ and he's forgiven you of your sins and adopted you in your family, you don't have to live that way anymore. Why? Because now he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. In other words, the teaching is that now that Christ is in your heart, he has come to lead you into full, joyful life. He is the one who can make your marriage so exciting. He is the one who can make your business fulfilling. He is the one who can give you the proper perspective of why God gives you possessions and what you're to use them for. He makes sense of a messed up world and brings sanity to an insane people. That's who Jesus is. He brings us to our senses. He wakes us up. And more importantly, the most exciting part of this is that we have a part in it. What do you mean by that? He says, so you've heard of Christ, and he's talking to the Ephesians, you were taught the truth about Christ. Well, what truth? Well, first, you're to put off that old nature. You see, now that Christ has died for your sins and he's been raised from the dead, his resurrection has been such a glorious gift to us in that not only are we given a new life, we are given his righteousness so that when God sees you, he doesn't go, you poor, poor thing, and wag his finger. God looks at you, and what does he see? He sees the perfection that Christ has done for you. He sees you the way he intends to present you to the Father when we are gathered in heaven. You got it? That's why this whole image of new clothes I don't know about you, but 
I love working in the wood shop, and when I go into the wood shop, I come out of it looking like Pigpen. Do you know who Pigpen is? Boys and girls, do you know who Pigpen is? He's a Charlie Brown character, and everywhere he goes, dirt just falls off of him, right? He is just a big cloud of dirt. <coughs> what would he look like if he was cleaned up? Well, that's what Paul is saying, that you have been cleaned up because of Christ. Therefore, you're to put off that old way of living. He goes on and he says, not only are you put off the old way of living, you're to be made different in the spirit of your mind. And I love this. Hear this. This is powerful. I've got one more point and you can go home. You are now to live in a relationship with God through Christ where you have a different way of thinking. And there are two words in the Greek that are used to express this. The one here in this verse and then the one in the verse we take up next week. The word in this verse speaks about a childlike excitement to learn. Imagine if you could take an eraser and just erase everything that you've learned about the old way of life. Just erase it and start over. Could you do that? Paul says in Christ you can. Isn't that beautiful? Not only that, you're to put on a new self. What do you mean by that? Well, you, you know what I mean. You, you, you're going out for supper. <coughs> you're going out for supper, and you don't wear the stuff you, you wore in the wood shop that has all the dust on it, right? No, you, you put on your best. I mean, some of you women, you just astound us. You, you go in, and you, you take hours in the bathroom we're not sure what happened to you but then you come out and you're dressed up and your makeup is there and we just kind of go wow that's what Paul talks about you developing as Christ begins to come into your life and you mature in him you mature in him <laughs> I'm done now, what do you know? If you love Jesus, there's a possibility you could go back and live the way you used to, but you'll never be happy. And it won't last. Because if you could do that continually, then it really means you don't know Jesus. But if you know him, then birthed within you is a spirit that desires to know him more. And when you yell at your spouse over stupid things, you turn to God and you say, God, why am I being this way? Or you lose your temper and you get angry and you just don't know what to do, so you lash out at your kids or your parents. And you kind of go, why, why did I do that? You know that God is near speaking to you about putting off the old and putting on the new. In fact, as we get into chapter 4, <coughs> we're going to unpack some of this because Paul's going to begin to teach us about how to love Jesus. To teach us. Isn't that beautiful? Let's close in prayer. 
Father, if, if this work of God is at work in us, then have your way with us in every part of our lives and change us and mold us into your image. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>